Welcome to the Dev Pod with me, James Benicol. And I'm really excited about this special guest. And I know I always say this, but actually, <laughs> I have had him in mind for quite some time to get on the podcast because he's one of the very few people who's really been calling out the lockdown. But certainly one of the very few people in business. His name is Luke Johnson. He is an entrepreneur. You are chairman of Risk Capital Partners. Anything else you want to tell us about yourself, Luke, before we plunge in? Um, I also chair Brighton Peer Group and I chair Gales Bakeries. Right. OK. But do you, is that because you live near Brighton or you, you just care about Brighton Pier? No, I got involved by happenstance and uh, I live in London, but uh, I do love the pier and um, uh, it's a great business. Interesting. Now, just before we, I don't, I'm famous for not doing my research on my, before my interviews, but because uh, I, I like that kind of free, that free spirit it gives it. But I did look at your appearance on Question Time, which mm -hmm. uh, for, for American and other, other foreign listeners, um, it's kind of a painfully woke political discussion program on the BBC. And there you were, the lone lockdown sceptic, surrounded by a panel of what I would call COVID bedwetters. And it was quite clear that the chairman, Fiona Bruce, was not on your side. I mean, how did you find that experience, that being, being the lone voice of sanity in a, in a sea of COVID bedwetting lunacy? It was quite bizarre because unlike normally with Question Time, there was no audience. So at least yeah. I wasn't barracked by a lot of uh, lefty um, COVID fanatics in the audience. Um, they would all have been sheltering at home in a, in a state yeah. of... Cowering. Cowering at home. Um, <clears throat> but I was also the only one of five uh, who was from the private sector. And that was a point I made forcefully. And I think there is a bit of a dividing line between those who tend to be very supportive of lockdown and those who are very concerned by it. And um, those who are supportive are people like uh, the public sector workers, none of whom, not a single one of whom will face the prospect of redundancy. Whereas um, if the worst fears are to be believed, uh, we could be hitting unemployment of 5 million in this country, which would be uh, a, a quadrupling of the uh, levels of unemployment from prior to the to the lockdown. And not all of that will come because of the lockdown. Some of it may have been happening anyhow. Some of it may have happened even if we'd have followed Sweden uh, because of the general damage of the pandemic. But I would argue that a great many of those jobs will be lost because of the collateral damage of lockdown and the misery of millions of unemployed uh, is not something to take lightly. And you could see across the other guests that it, it, it barely registered for them in terms of importance. They think in that way that they jobs for life, defined benefit pensions for life, and, you know, whether it be NHS, teaching, civil service, the police, union boss, uh, uh, the transport unions, uh, they, they're they all right, Jack, you taxpayers in the private sector who represent 85% of the workforce, by the way, the, the public sector is only 15% of the workforce, but they are our lords and masters 
who make all the rules, always keep their jobs. And um, as I say, have, in a perverse way, I think quite a few of them have rather enjoyed this lockdown. That is really frightening. Now, I didn't know that. I assumed it was roughly 50-50 because I think probably in, in terms of the share of the economy, the private, uh, the public sector is about 50%, isn't it? Not, not 14, 15%. Yes, 40%, yes. Yeah. yeah. Now, that's frightening in itself. Um, yes. Do you get the impression, as I do, that, um, well, your fellow panellists would be a classic. I don't know who was on, on the panel with you. Can you remember? Yeah, there were... Um... Uh, two MPs, an yeah. academic, and a union person. So, and I was right, that's a balance. And in balance. fact, of course, there's Fiona Bruce, and arguably she's part of the BBC, which is also part of the public sector. Uh, although yeah. I think she's probably freelance, but nevertheless, you know, it's generally BBC groupthink to see the public sector as all there is. And if you look at their coverage, almost invariably of business and the private sector in general. It's treated yeah. with a mixture of disdain and suspicion and contempt. And uh, this helps, you know, it's all part of the culture wars whereby uh, free markets, capitalism, those who are interested in the profit motive, um, dynamism, growth, all that is seen as bad. And public sector, more government is seen as good. Yeah. Because even before, even before this COVID-19 scare kicked off, people of our persuasion were, worry, were worrying greatly about the growth of the public sector and the expansion of this state. I mean, I, I think it's right to say that even under Margaret Thatcher and even under Ronald Reagan, government spending actually increased as a sector of the as a percentage of the of the economy didn't it so so there's an inexorable process whereby government is getting bigger and bigger the public sector is, is getting more and more well funded that was before this happened now i mean what's the world going to look like when all this is over Do, I, I mean we've almost got we've almost got uh, fully automated luxury communism as predicted by various yeah loony lefties I don't think we're quite there. And it is probably fair to say that public spending pub, as, a, as a proportion of the economy as a whole does fluctuate. And there are periods when it falls. And right. even 40 percent or 41 or 2 percent, I think it might be at the moment in the UK, we are materially below, say, France, where it's over 50 percent. And that's, to me, you know, catastrophic levels of big government. It crowds out private sector, less innovative um, it, it, it's obviously a zero-sum game in that sense because there's no surplus creating the tax to pay for it all. So it's an ever greater burden placed on the diminishing private sector. Um, yeah. I think the, the challenge we do face, be it post-COVID or in general, is that although, you know, I think there is a very good argument to say that the um, free markets and uh, the, the dynamism of the private sector has won the economic argument over the decades. Unfortunately, I think the right has been losing the cultural argument in the sense that um, following Gramsci's uh, uh, march through the institutions, be it um, uh, universities, uh, be it the arts, 
uh, a bit much of the media industry, uh, many other walks of life, uh, politics to a fair degree, um, even people who are right of centre who go into the world of academia or politics, they get captured. The system captures them and eventually they concede. And if you look at this government, uh, they could almost be a Labour government in much of their behaviour, in their cowering against any of the um, woke uh, beliefs and philosophies. And um, I think the behaviour of many leaders in the business community is pathetic. Again, they're cowards. They won't stand up and be counted and resist organisations that actually want to bring about the end of capitalism and want to fire all those business bosses. Um, and, you know, you have to win hearts and minds. And this is what a lot of people in business don't realise, that if you lose whole generations because they all get higher education and come out of university campuses full of mumbo jumbo about how the economy is funded and how they're actually going to live, then of course they come out with nonsense, hating business and the private sector and so forth, uh, and denying the catastrophic history of communism through the many decades. And um, we're having to manage that now with particularly, I would say, people under the age of 40 who've been brainwashed to a fair degree by the dominant left of centre uh, uh, thinking that goes on in, in universities. And um, it's very damaging. Yeah, well, I've got I've got friends in in, in, in business and in, in the city and so on. And somebody was telling me that that they had these friends who are, are sort of at a fairly senior level in the city. And when they want to recruit people who aren't brainwashed by this left wing nonsense, they have to go to these elaborate um, adopt these elaborate ploys to get round the human resources departments, which are all <laughs> relentlessly woke, desperately keen to get BAME recruits, you know, sort of transgender recruits. Anyone, anyone of a conservative disposition is automatically off the menu. So they have to do things like saying, if you don't mind, I'll just, I'll just, I'll just take this, this chap or this chapess out, out for a coffee. I no need for you to come along, human resources woman. <laughs> and then they have to ask them, ask them kind of uh, subtle questions like, so uh, what websites do you look at? And and uh, so that it's very hard. You must have seen this to escape the tyranny of woke in business, which ought to be. I mean, the business of business ought to be about doing business, right? It ought to be about the bottom line. It ought to be about generating value for shareholders. But instead, it's become something else in, entirely. And I get very depressed about this. Can you give me any consolation that there was going to be a fight back? Because I'm not seeing it, apart from you. Well, I'm not disagreeing with you, but I think that the, the principle of diversity and inclusion is fundamentally a good one. But I think it must apply to all aspects of life, including intellectual diversity. And I think the most profound hypocrisy of our universities, for example, is that they're obsessed about diversity, except when it comes to intellectual diversity. So yeah. if someone is right of centre or supports the Conservative Party or, God forbid, voted for Brexit, then they are in danger of being ostracised and um, held in severe contempt and they dare not speak their mind on so many issues because if 
they were ever, for example, and I'm not particularly a supporter, but if, say, an academic were to uh, retweet something that President Tweet had said, uh, President Trump had said, then they would surely be tweet. fired on the <laughs> President Tweet. Uh, surely they would be <laughs> fired on the spot. And it's yeah. a slightly extreme example, but you know, originally our universities were about freedom of speech and diversity of views, and you know substantial debate to try and come to the truth about things as far as it can be, or for each side to agree to disagree. But I'm afraid to say there is a totalitarianism of the left now, and this intolerance of diversity, uh, intellectual diversity, does extend into all sorts of other places, like, for example, charities, where I would say that there is a, a, a strong tendency towards left of centre dominance. Um, in so many of the quangos now, uh, I would say that certainly I've served on a number, um, you know, I would be the only right wing person in the room. And you can almost tell that sometimes they realise they made a mistake by appointing me in the first place. And um, I think increasingly people like me will not get any of these sort of posts or appointments. We will be seen as persona non grata for all sorts of reasons. And um, I think this this creating divisions and this intolerance of diversity um, and labelling anyone who doesn't agree with the script that people like the BBC promulgate is an extremist. And um, I think it's a sort of grotesque distortion of society, the crushing of freedom and of independent thought. Uh, it's as if groupthink has become the only way that the whole of civilization can behave. And um, I, I find it very suffocating, to be honest. Yeah. Your, your dad, Paul Johnson, famously started out as a man of the left and then shifted rightwards as he kind of, as his frontal lobes formed or something. Did you go, did you go through a, did you go through a similar phase or were you no, always? I, I took an early interest in politics where my mum stood for the Labour Party in um, 1974, uh, but I was only 12 at the time. And apart from that, I didn't really pay any attention. And then uh, as I discovered business at university, uh, it was the era of Mrs. Thatcher. So um, I was at university from 80 to 83. And um, All right. I saw that her embrace of free enterprise and um, the power of you know, business to uh, improve people's lives uh, was, uh, I supported that completely and have done ever since through what I do for a living. And um, we're going to see the reverse of that very, very sadly over the coming months and years, which is that um, since lockdown started in March, you know, business has not been allowed to trade. People have not been allowed to work. The economy has, has produced uh, a far lower output than it should be. And as a consequence, this induced coma for the commercial world is going to have devastating consequences for our standard of living as a country and for millions of people who won't be able to earn earn a living. And um, we will see that when capital, it, capitalism is prevented from delivering the goods and creating wealth, uh, the, the harm is very widespread indeed. And um, I dread to think of the consequences for this country of having four or even five million people out of work. That hasn't been the case for many decades. And um, if we think we're getting a bit of, so, so to speak, civil 
civil unrest now, God forbid, when the, I don't know how many millions of those 9 million on furlough get a P45 instead of a call to come back to work, which I'm afraid is happening as we speak because hundreds and hundreds of companies are letting their people go while they're still on furlough before the terms change on the 1st of August. So I think at the end of June, the unemployment numbers will leap and they will leap even further at the end of July and it will continue that way for some considerable months. And I'm very fearful that this idea of a V-shaped recovery where there's a rapid upturn uh, and suddenly all these businesses re-recruit those people, it's not going to happen because a lot of these companies, I'm sad to say, are going to shut for good and not reopen. Yeah, I, I think we're in what, what I, I've, I've been calling a perfect storm of, of stupid in, <laughs> in that, for example, the, the running down of our police police force or police, I don't know what they call them now, but they don't like to use the word force because that's that sounds far too like keeping Grace. law and order. Uh, yeah, uh, the, 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 so the police have been completely uh, emasculated. Um, I mean, quite literally emasculated uh, with, with, with the recruitment, you know, painting their fingernails and stuff in solidarity <laughs> with God knows what. And then you've got academe, which is now, I, I hate to use the phrase not fit for purpose, but I mean, I, I genuinely do feel ashamed to have been to Oxford, uh, or rather I don't because it was different back then, but I, I, I look at Oxford and Cambridge now and I think you are just totally over. So you've got that, you've got a Conservative Party, Conservative government, which isn't Conservative anymore. And looming on the horizon, as you say, it hasn't arrived yet, is this like a kind of Zulu impi just over the over the hill, waiting to, to, to get us with their assegais, is this massed unemployment. And we haven't even experienced it yet. And already there are riots in the streets of London, which the police already are proving themselves unable to contain. So I'm really pessimistic about what's coming. And I just, well, I mean, can you give me any sops of comfort? Well, ultimately, as an entrepreneur, I've always believed in the energy and the enthusiasm and the optimism of entrepreneurs. And, yeah. um, you know, they are resourceful people and every generation brings forth a new lot of inventors and creators and get up and go people who take risks and start new things and develop businesses even during the toughest times. And they're a resilient bunch as a whole. Uh, so I place my faith in them. Um, <laughs> they do require rule of law and they require property rights. And I hope that our government can get a grip. It does feel to me in recent months as if those things have been um, slightly falling apart. And uh, the government has sort of veered between uh, almost totalitarianism and um, losing control of the entire thing. Uh, and I do worry that people perhaps a lot of people don't have the respect they did for the authorities even at the beginning of the year because they're beginning to see that this entire um, removal of their freedoms, unprecedented ever in peacetime, uh, has been a mistake and has been badly executed. And, um, you know, they only govern with our consent. And when we decide that actually we're no longer willing to be compliant about this, then uh, the whole facade collapses. So I hope we haven't reached that point because clearly for those 
you know, who have businesses to run, uh, rule of law is very important. Um, yes. Uh, generally speaking, this country has been in the top half dozen, I would argue, anywhere in terms of the justice system, in terms of, uh, you know, the lack of corruption of our public servants and so forth. Uh, you compare it to so many dozens and dozens of countries in many, many parts of the world, which are not safe places by our standards to do business. Uh, and I think it's one of the big reasons, one of the hidden reasons why we've always tended to attract lots of overseas investment is because, you know, foreigners feel they can trust us and they can do business here and they, you know, there won't be a kleptocratic state or whatever and that the court system works and they can enforce contracts and all the rest of it. Um, mm -hmm. we, we must maintain that, uh, otherwise we will no longer be seen as a safe haven and if we no longer attract foreign investment then it will mean reviving our economy will be even harder. Um, so uh, ultimately I've always been an optimist, I believe in our country, I believe in um, free enterprise and I hope we will recover but I do fear certainly for 2020 it's a complete write-off. Uh, things will get worse before they get better, certainly on the economic front, certainly on the unemployment front, uh, and possibly on the political and cultural front. Um, we need to come to our senses. It may be that as a nation, eventually there will be a serious wake-up call and we will realise that we are not as rich as we thought we were. We've been living beyond our means. We need to work rather harder. We need to get back to school. We need to get public transport working properly again. Uh, we need to redirect the authorities towards the true priorities in society rather than uh, identity politics and nonsense and focus on the basics because I think an increasing number of people are realising gradually that those are the things that matter rather than uh, a lot of woke rubbish uh, led by, well, organisations like the BBC amongst others. Yeah. Well, sure, I agree that everything you say, these are all desiderata, but actually I look at what the government is saying and I'm not really getting many signals, apart from their paying lip service to the notion that lower taxes are better than higher taxes for, for boosting economic growth. I'm, I'm hearing a sort of neo-Keynesian um, uh, policy coming down the line. For example, they still seem to be wedded to their, their version of the Green New Deal. They still seem to imagine that by making energy more expensive um, and, and bigging up the renewable sector, which as we know is a huge waste of money, um, they're still talking about, well, they haven't scrapped HS2. So where, where do you, are you getting the, the, the idea that there might be a kind of entrepreneurial revival when even a conservative government is talking about bigger government, more spending. And also, while we're on that subject, you talk about five million unemployed people. I, I, I would imagine the government's solution to that is, is going to be not let's get out of the way and let's let the private sector generate more, more growth. What they're going to say is, yes, we, we must give these people jobs. We must pay them through the, the already hard-pressed money of the private sector. We must pay these people to work. I, I don't see any any cause for optimism there. Well, you may be right. I fear that this is a government that has already got the taste for massive intervention, uh, just yeah. as the power of um, some of the things they've done has clearly gone to their head, where 
on a daily basis they make threats about if you're not careful we'll shut the beaches or whatever it may be today um, yeah. so uh, you know they are behaving like politicians i'm afraid always do uh, which is that they get carried away uh, um, with their own megalomania um, you may be right i i rely on the private sector to do the heavy lifting not government and i think one of the great flaws of modern society is that when things go wrong we always look to government for solutions and answers and money and so forth and yes. you know we've borrowed now a total national debt of over two trillion uh, it's well over a hundred percent of gdp now and rising never again before in peacetime as it reached that level and um you know things on that front could get worse because i think uh you know a lot of taxes have been deferred for a lot of companies and individuals and uh they're going to find it difficult to repay those taxes when when they come due uh it's it is a perfect storm uh as i say i think it's going to be an extremely difficult six months and it's astonishing to think this is a tory government uh they're not behaving yeah. very like a tory government admittedly they face the crisis of um covid but if they had perhaps behaved rather more like the swedish government in their independence of spirit and in their faith in their people then we might be in a rather better place unfortunately they didn't yeah you must spend a lot of time talking to people in in business um do you What's the impression you get of their attitude towards the government's lockdown policy, etc.? I mean, because, OK, just give me one example. My, my parents are, are in their 80s and my mother tells me that all her friends, she's the only one of her friends who is not absolutely paranoid about this about this virus they all think they're gonna die and i when i when, when i go to the supermarket when you go to the supermarket i imagine it's the same you look around and you see lots of jumpy people wearing these ridiculous masks like like if you get too close they're gonna die and i'm just wondering is that is that kind of bedwetting attitude prevalent in the business community or is it just the general populace which feel this i think it varies a lot uh, i mean i think older people not surprisingly because those over the age of say 65 and those who've already got another condition are much more vulnerable so in a way yeah. you can't blame them for being more frightened uh, I, I think what's really bizarre is the one truly effective policy that the government have had you know they've had lots of policies like track and trace failure testing failure um quarantining visitors in um uh, February and early March failure, uh, lots of things they've got wrong. The one thing they've done really well is Project Fear 2. Their propaganda has yes. helped scare the country rigid. Uh, and yeah. there was an Ipso Mori poll today that showed that of 27 countries, we are the one by a material amount where people think uh, uh, COVID is the worst thing that we face as a nation out of 27 countries. Uh, we are more frightened than any other country and i think even though the um economic projections suggest that our economy will shrink slightly less this year than the french or spanish i think those could be optimistic because i think our fear is so embedded now that it's going to be harder to get people back to work to school 
Uh, it's going to be harder to get the unions to run the transport so people can commute. It's going to be harder to get the teachers back to schools. And as a consequence, I think that we will be slower to recover as an economy. So I do think it's quite possible that we will perform worse than any other comparable nation in terms of the damage this has done to us. And it will be very largely self-inflicted, not just the impact of the lockdown itself, but the government-induced fear, the protect the NHS and all the other mantra, which, you know, as you know, that was another catastrophic mistake I think the government made. They became so obsessed about protecting the NHS, they didn't protect the most vulnerable people. They decanted yes. Vulnerable people, some of whom were infected without testing, into care homes where they infected other people. And that is where a, an alarming proportion of people have died. And this is a serious scandal that will come back to bite these Tories. And the left, yeah. you know, amongst many of the lockdown bedwetters, they're playing a political game, of course. It's not just that they're enjoying sitting in the sunshine on furlough or whatever, or they work in the public sector. They're loving the fact yeah. that it's a Tory government in power and they're writhing. And so anything this government does will be criticised. And I am certainly criticising our government. But for them, it's a political game. And they are very destructive people because they don't really care. You know, they're arsonists in a way. They don't care if they burn the economy and destroy millions of jobs. Because as far as they're concerned, you know, the um, great march towards a left-wing paradise, it's the price worth paying. Yeah, totally. I mean, they, they want they want to generate the environment that foments revolution. That, that I is do the deal. So who do you, I feel more who than, do you blame? Well, it's easy to blame all sorts of obvious big figures. You know, clearly the cabinet <coughs> take responsibility. I think we were very unlucky in that Boris got ill. And I think his apparent, you know, near-death experience changed him a lot in terms of his attitude. And his absence in a critical period meant there was complete paralysis in government. So I think that was uh, very bad on many levels. Uh, I think, as I say, that the long march through the institutions, like the police, for example, and indeed, obviously, the civil service and all the quangos, and the medical and scientific worlds, because of the NHS, and therefore essentially every doctor works for the government, all these organisations are biased to the left. And so, A, they're suspicious of the Tory government, B, they know nothing about economics, C, they are suspicious fundamentally of the private sector and business, even though, as I say, the private sector is 85% of all jobs in the economy. They take the taxes for granted that pay their salaries and pensions and um, forever feel that they're not rewarded well enough and then they should be getting more. And the cult every Thursday evening for 10 weeks of clapping the NHS, all very well. My wife works for the NHS, it happens. But the truth of the matter is, it, it, it allows us to over obsess about you know, a giant public sector body, one and a half million people, where no one really knows the proper cost of healthcare, and, you know, too much command and control in that organisation itself. And I think, you know, we're not necessarily as a society going to enjoy the inquiries of COVID, because some of them will start to point the finger at parts of the NHS, in particular Public Health England, but possibly even its hospital trusts and others as well, that were, as I say, decanting very elderly, vulnerable people, some of whom were infected with COVID, 
into care homes and then neglecting those care homes. It's not a good story, yeah. not a good look for the NHS, I think. Yes, but do you not think that because uh, of the very nature of the NHS, all the propaganda we've we've been fed, that people are so brainwashed? Uh, well, we've already seen this. You remember that, that that scandalous hospital where people were, were lying in mattresses in, in their own orgia and blood and the nurses were, were not were not giving them water and you, terrible, terrible things. Was it was it Staffordshire hospitals? I think yeah. it was. Mm -hmm. And and yet people carried on hearting the NHS. It was it it, 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 it remained our cherished national religion. There was there is a, a national cognitive dissonance about the National Health Service, which has been uh, enhanced or worsened by this the clapping propaganda campaign to the point where I my fear is that we're going to end up being a, a a giant NHS with a tiny private sector economy attached <laughs> just sort of giving its blood every day to the to this to this parasite well you you could extrapolate that and I fear that it's a yeah, conceivable future yes yes I agree you know if the NHS were as world-class as so many believe then we would have done a lot better in terms of our performance, so to speak, during this pandemic, in terms of testing, in terms of track and trace, in terms of uh, COVID deaths per million, and so forth and so on, in terms of our preparation of equipment and, and you know, various other aspects. And you look at the German system, for example, where, you know, and I don't believe it's because of the government, uh, but they arguably on many measures have performed much better than we have. And it's actually a mixed model with uh, not-for-profit, government-controlled and private sector all working together, diverse uh, and you know efficient because it isn't one giant bureaucracy where um, you know it's too political and uh, unwieldy and not flexible enough. Um, and so, you know, if if we weren't so religiously wedded to the NHS, then I think probably we would be humble enough to say we can learn from why the Germans did so well. Let's replicate some of what they do. You know, some have a mixed model with some insurance, etc., etc., a state underwriting and so forth and so on. And it's the same in other countries that seem to have a better system, like, for example, Australia. But no, we have to stick with our tried and tested political vehicle, which is a juggernaut, which, as you say, threatens to crush virtually every other part of uh, our, our society because it is so hungry. Yeah. So when when the, the lockdown began, I think we can probably agree there was a reasonable be case to be made for caution. It was that the, the disease was an unknown quantity. We didn't know whether it was bioengineered. We didn't know how virulent it was. We, we, we could probably have guessed that the, the Swedes did, but 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 anyway, uh, on the precautionary principle, maybe just maybe it was worth locking down for three weeks. But here we are three months on 13. and I think 13 weeks. Is it? This is the 13th week. And I think any halfway informed person, which which surely must include the cabinet, I mean, they must have access to the same information that we've got access Far to. Far more access. Will have done some. They'd have done their background reading. They'd have listened to, well, I mean, uh, uh, people like Dr. John Lee and The Spectator and, and Michael Levitt and, and, and uh, 
what's he, Professor Israel, I think, uh, the, the, the professor in Israel anyway, who's, who, who says that whether you have a lockdown or not a lockdown, it makes this, it, it, the d disease follows the same trajectory uh, and it's all over pretty much as it is now in this country. Given all this, why do you think it is that the government is persisting with the charade? For example, when the pubs open, they're not going to open properly, are they? They're going to open next week and they're going to be hedged around with these rules like you've got to give your name uh, mm. so that they can trace you, your name and address. And, and you've got to keep a sort of one. Uh, have you got any theories on why this? Well, clearly one is that uh, I think they listen too much to um, their surveys, which they're doing constantly. And because they have petrified the public, the public are telling them, be careful. And so they're being too careful. Actually, they should be bold and leading the public and saying, it will be safe. That's awful word, safe, that has no you know, scientific meaning at all, in fact. Um, and- Yeah, life isn't safe, is it? You know, they it have, it's fatal, in fact. The trouble is that for the scientist advisors and indeed the politicians, there is no penalty for being too cautious, not in the shorter term anyhow, because the economic and other consequences, you know, the depression and the destroyed schooling and the missed cancer and heart um, appointments, that the collateral damage of lockdown, those consequences flow over a longer period and they're much harder to attach directly to lockdown. So the criticism will be much more diminished, whereas because of the obsession with the daily death toll and the idea of second waves and all this, you know, hyped up nonsense, um, the politicians are paranoid and unschooled in the science. You know, I have more medical qualifications than the entire cabinet put together. And I left medicine when I was 21. It's utterly pathetic. I mean, it truly is scary how ignorant they all are about medical science. So, of course, the gurus on SAGE have bamboozled them. And I would say that for SAGE itself, partly in order to avoid criticism of the fact that the lockdown and various of the other strategies and policies have not been well executed, that it's in their interest to um, <coughs> keep the fear going in a way. You know, they don't want normal life to return because A, then they're out of the spotlight and B, then there will be the inevitable difficult questions to answer. And as we already know, the core underlying model that Imperial produced with the half a million deaths that our Prime Minister has repeated on crucial occasions like that great Sunday evening when he came back and he repeated that figure of up to half a million deaths. We know that's a fantasy figure. It's, it's a ludicrously overblown number that uh, was never likely to happen. But it seems to me that that was the basis for uh, British policy and why we've had to endure virtually the longest lockdown in the world. I mean, in Spain, I think the lockdown was only six or seven weeks. And here we are in week 13. And um, I think they caught themselves in this sort of circle of fear and nervousness about criticism. So it's but the way they see it, they've, they've, they've built up not just the um, anxiety amongst the public, but even amongst themselves. And I think the, that the anxiety itself can be uh, contagious in a way. 
How do you explain? Uh, you've you've got a column, haven't you? I think in the yeah. Times. Have you still got a column? Yeah. Yeah. How do you explain what can only be described as the media's piss poor performance in all this? I mean, I mean, to a to a newspaper, and of course, the the, the broadcast media has been the same. Everyone has been running the government's project fear propaganda all almost unquestioned save in in the comment section uh from a few licensed sort of right-wing gestures but the news pages have unanimously pushed the narrative that we need we can't get back to normal until we found the vaccine that mm. this 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 virus is unprecedented mm. uh, how do you explain that because newspaper proprietors a business, they're entrepreneurs like you. They understand fact. Uh, they understand, you know, the bottom line. Why are they? Why are they essentially committing the, the nation to economic suicide? It's a very good question. I'm not sure. I think for places like the BBC, it's obvious that um, yeah. I think you know Ofcom, the regulated broadcasters, were told by Ofcom that uh, essentially yeah. they had to toe the government's line. And scepticism was yeah. not really allowed by law, which, again, I think is grotesque um, suppression of free speech. But anyhow, uh, I think for newspapers, you know, if it bleeds, it leads. And I think scare stories can help sell copies, I'm afraid, and get clicks. So I think in a great many cases, uh, editors believe, possibly correctly, that they would sell more copies if they had... Uh, more terrifying articles. Um, to give them credit, I think the Telegraph has had quite regular and particularly in recent weeks uh, sceptical pieces from a number of journalists. I think the Spectator's done a pretty good job throughout. I think this new magazine, The Critic, has done a very good job. And obviously, you know, the internet. And interestingly, actually, if you looked at Twitter in January and February, that's where people were taking the pandemic seriously when the mainstream media weren't. Uh, I don't just mean seriously in terms of the infectiousness and so forth <clears throat> and the risk to the West, but also the consequences of if we followed China in the lockdown and so forth. Um, <clears throat> what, of course, is horribly ironic and very dangerous for the West is that if you look at the latest projections, virtually all the major Western economies, us, Germany, America, France, etc., etc., we will all suffer much bigger economic downturns than China will. China, the OECD, now think will grow 1% this year, whereas countries like us will probably shrink 10%. And yet we copied the lockdown from them. They supplied us with the virus. We copied the lockdown. And they're now laughing because we have significantly weakened our competitiveness at a crucial time when China is becoming ever more assertive and, you know, all those who would do us down, i.e. the unions and the woke and the left who hate the Tories and business, you know, they will all come to regret their foolishness if what this means is the West is ill-equipped to deal with the challenge of China in all its ways. And, you know, China is taking no prisoners these days. They're not fighting a physical war. But I would say they probably are by any other means in, in my, you know, who is conducting the cyber attack against Australia, I wonder, you know, <laughs> I think we all can't, know. Can't it? Yeah. Um, and also, also, of course, that China is going to have 
I mean, relatively, if, it, if its economic growth is 1% up and we're 10% or more down, China is going to be able to hoover up distressed assets, isn't it? And yeah. increase its grip, its economic grip on yeah. the economy. And they have had to pump prime their economy far less than we have, you know, because for every week that we're in lockdown and the government having to fork out billions of furlough money and all the rest of it, propping up more and more parts of the economy, that's more and more debt that's one day got to be repaid. And over-indebted countries are not fit and growing ones. You know, if you look at us after the Second World War, we were essentially bankrupted. And it's one of the main reasons why Britain didn't enjoy anything like the growth in terms of its economy right up until the era of Thatcher, through the 50s, 60s, 70s, etc. You know, we were the weak man of Europe. And it's because, amongst other things, we inherited a great deal of debt fighting the Second World War. And, you know, we're going to be in a poor position coming out of this. And that's a big worry in terms of, you know, Brexit, because we will have an independent pound. We're obviously not part of the euro. Um, and I am, as it happens, in favour of leaving the EU. But nevertheless, <coughs> we will be more vulnerable in certain respects if our economy is in a poor shape. And I fear it will be. So I haven't given you much room for optimism, I'm afraid, dear James. I'm sorry about this. I didn't no, mean to be no. a sort of house pessimist. That isn't my style. I am feeling quite gloomy about our prospects right now. Hopefully, things will pick up and it will be better than one's worst fears. Well, I, I did rather lead you in that direction, Luke. I mean, <laughs> I did rather encourage, encourage you. Uh, now, I cannot waste um, a time with you without asking you, um, as an investor, did, do you find times like this really exciting because, because of the massive fluctuations in markets and the buying opportunities, or do you just get depressed by it all? Uh, well, I tend not to be a speculator in stock markets because I tend to buy large percentage holdings in private businesses and own them for some years and get involved actively in helping to grow them. And I only have a small right. portfolio of businesses that I, you know, own and actively involved with. Um, so, you know, I pay less attention to the, you know, fluctuations of the London Stock Exchange or Wall Street. Um, I think in terms of opportunities now for people like me buying companies in distress, say, there are some. Yeah. And I have been spending time over recent months looking at possibilities, trying to find businesses to save and re re rebuild. Um, and, there, you know, there are some. So despite my pessimistic talk, I haven't given up on this economy by, by any means at all. I want to continue yeah. to buy and grow businesses here. Um, mm -hmm. It's not easy because obviously all the uncertainties we've discussed and a lot of the fear and the lack of confidence. Um, <clears throat> no, I would say it's it's one of the least predictable climates I can ever remember in terms of investing. And uh, I think, you know, probably stock markets in general are overheated. Uh, it's clearly partly because there's been so much money printed in the UK, US, etc. Uh, so much government pump priming, the interest rates have gone to more or less zero. And as ever, whenever governments flood the system with cash, it ends up in inflating asset prices. And that's what it's doing, I'm afraid. Right. You know, share prices almost always benefit. 
directly or indirectly from uh, uh, government um, liquidity, which is what they've done uh, in unprecedented fashion in the last four months. Do you think that if you look at if you divide the world into historically into post-COVID and pre-COVID, um, the world where you made your money was to do with you know, what companies like Pizza Express, Patisserie Valerie, which in those days would have made total sense because people were spe- we were a service economy. People, you know, you very cleverly caught the growth in in cafe culture. Um, in in people were dining out a hell of a lot, weren't they? In in the days before COVID, but in order to do that, you need disposable income, which I think people aren't going to have so much. Uh, I mean, is there any hope for the hospitality industry in this in this new world, or is or is this the perfect buying opportunity? Are there going to be so many distressed a- assets that you can move in there like a hungry shark? Well, this is the decision I'm having to make when looking at businesses, because mostly the sort of businesses I have been pursuing have been in this type of sector because it's a very large uh, industry, and obviously there are a number of businesses that are struggling in need of capital and yeah. refinancing. Um, it's a tough call because uh, up until the 4th of July, in theory, no pub or restaurant or cafe <coughs> can actually open and seat guests. But from the yeah. 4th of July, they will be allowed to resume business. And we will then find out, you know, will they recover quickly to previous levels of revenue or not? And as you point yeah. out, if people are nervous about their jobs, if people haven't paid their mortgage, uh, if people are um, worried about debt, then um, they're not going to discretionary spend on eating out so much. And um, mm. four months of not eating out and drinking out, people may have changed their habits. Uh, they yeah. may have used to eating and drinking at home. And obviously it's cheaper to do that. Um, one hopes not because I've been in this industry for over 25 years and I don't want it to suffer. But clearly it's going to shrink and I would say probably 5 to 10 to 15 percent of the business of the sect, the industry will shut one way or another. And it may take a few months, but it, they will go out of business. And so that reduced capacity, you hope, will mean that the survivors <coughs> can prosper. But I don't think it's yeah. guaranteed. I think it will be a hard climb back. And uh, I don't think there will be easy, cheap pickings because I think although prices of stuff, <coughs> clearly distressed businesses are lower uh, than they were six months ago or whatever, that reflects the reality of a much tougher climate and more difficult conditions. Yeah, yeah. No, I was thinking about, about trying to use my own experiences and, and extrapolating from that. On the one hand, I'm looking at my bank balance and seeing uh, this is great. I've really I, I've, I've saved a few bob because I haven't been been spending and I haven't been spending on my Pilates class. I feel sorry for my Pilates teacher. I, I would have carried on if I'd had the chance, but I didn't. Um, I, I'm thinking of my hairdresser. I've shaved my own hair again. You know, I'd much rather be paying a hairdresser to, to, to do this. But at the same time, another part of me is thinking, God, I want to get out and spend that. I want to go to a pub. I'm not, I'm not a great pub girl. I want to go to a pub and have a pint of beer. I want to go to my favorite London restaurant, Pierre de Terre, to have their delicious lunchtime time menu. Uh, and I suppose it must be hard for you as an entrepreneur 
trying to work out what to predict, predict the future basically because it could go either way people could just stop spending money because they're all unemployed and they don't want to spend anymore or there could be this massive rebound the v-shape v rebound well i don't believe in the v-shape and i do think there'll be no. permanent damage and i think that the sector will shrink um yeah you know the best operators the best financed the most popular will recover others will have to yeah. restructure and uh, shrink their portfolios um and it will be tough going as i say and you know uh it's not the only sector you know many others like travel and uh, theater and live performance these are all suffering enormously uh and that's not going to change anytime soon uh and there yeah. are many related and other industries like oil and gas and automotive and so forth that are also in pain so i don't yeah. think the idea that you know there are nine million people furloughed that is out of 33 million working population that's an enormous number and that shows the number of businesses that are you know in an induced coma and like with a human being when you put them in an induced coma and you bring them back out it doesn't always work and for a lot of businesses that are coming out of the induced coma, uh, they may not actually still have a heartbeat and or the owners may have just lost courage and gone. Uh, there the may not be the cash to revive the business. So uh, it's going to be tough and uh, we won't really be able to judge just how much permanent harm's been done until I suspect turn of the year. And then we will see, you know, how many are out of work, how many insolvencies there are, um, which sectors are back to previous levels of, 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 of income and so forth, and which are the walking wounded. Uh, we may end up with yeah. a lot of zombie companies where they haven't actually been shut down, but by the same token, they, you know, can't really generate profits and are not able to grow. And they're a drag on the economy as well. So I, I think it's going to be, you know, as I say, a very difficult 12 months. I don't want to pry into your personal affairs, but does one need to be sitting on a pile of cash in these times or is it going to be possible for entrepreneurs like you to borrow at a, a decent rate? And if you do borrow at a decent rate, is there not a risk that uh, interest rates might go up massively and screw you up that way? Well, I think the entire economy, James, is depending government, homeowners, businesses on the idea that interest rates won't go up. If interest rates go up materially, then we're all sunk because we've got two right. trillion plus of national debt. Uh, homeowners have got an awful lot of debt, obviously, with mortgages. Britain as a whole, household, corporate, government, generally speaking, has a lot of debt. So if interest rates go up, we suffer disproportionately as a nation. Uh, and we better hope that interest rates remain low for a very long time because that's all that's enabled the government and others to borrow as much as they have to pay all the furlough and all the soft loans to industry. Uh, I would say that mm. if you want to be able to move quick to take advantage of distressed businesses then you need to have cash rather than need to be able to borrow it because mostly banks won't lend you money to do these sort of deals which are high risk high reward and they're too dangerous for lenders. Yes. That was my question, really. So you, so you basically need to be need to be sitting on cash, which you means do. I can't be the next. I can't be the next Luke Johnson. How did you? Let me ask briefly. How did you? So you, you read medicine. Yeah. Um. How did you 
how did you because you presumably didn't inherit the money from your dad how, how no. did you get um, rich so i well i started in business at university as a sideline uh and i carried on after graduating and i worked in the city for a period and then when i was in my mid late 20s i went out on my own and um i struggled for a few years trying to find the right opportunity and then with a partner came across pizza express and together we bought it and we took it public and it was very successful through the 90s we grew it and that was really the turning point in my whole career and it's partly because of that i suppose that i've spent so long in this sector of dining out and and pubs and so forth um and although i've diversified and i've done things in healthcare and transport and other sectors i've generally come back to hospitality and leisure um and it's mm. where i've had most success and uh, you know i've obviously had flops as well as winners but um generally sure. I've made progress and you know I do believe passionately in the importance of entrepreneurs and in uh, backing new businesses and how um, entrepreneurs rather than big businesses are the ones that tend to innovate and generate the jobs actually and that's why in the coming years the government are going to have to um, stimulate entrepreneurship as much as they possibly can because it's the thing that we need more than anything to get the economy and the jobs coming back. Yeah, actually, this is interesting. This can be my last question to you, but I think I think it's quite germane to our discussion. Which is, so you you take an active role in 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 the businesses that you you buy, you help. I, I mean, presumably, when you were at Pizza Express, you were sort of making decisions to do with policy and stuff. Yes. Yeah. How do you deal as an entrepreneur with woke culture? How, for example, do you deal with human resources departments which want, want to, to force you to fly rainbow flags in the office and recruit people, not because they're the best person available for the job, but for, because you, you, can't, you can't micromanage. I mean, you, as, a, as, a, as a CEO, whatever, a chairman, you can't you can't look after every detail of recruitment, for example. So do you just lie back and just say, oh, I'm just going to get <laughs> I'm just going to take it from from the woke culture. I, I can't fight it. Or can you resist in any way? Well, my experience has generally been that um, in the private sector, you know, meritocracy and quality will out. And so, you know, generally speaking, you know, people organizations choose the best people for the job uh, and I think there are plenty of candidates across all groups of society and that you know often a degree of diversity in every sense can make it a stronger organization uh, I think what can happen and I think it's more often in the public sector and in the non-profit world is that um, <coughs> you end up in the world of quotas be it unspoken or not. And yeah. uh, I think that is not healthy because I think that undermines uh, equality and uh, it, it, it verges towards discrimination. Um, and, uh, you know, I think, you know, it, it, it's questionable even where it's legal. Uh, and I think that, you know, you have to cultivate candidates across the piece to try and find those who, you know, have 
hidden skills and bring something different to bear. And I can honestly say that if, you know, group think is very dangerous and group think is more common <coughs> when everyone on a board or in a meeting is from the same background. So actually you want diversity in organizations because I think then you get different perspectives. And I think organizations with a degree of diversity are actually more resilient. And I do believe that actually. That's been my experience. Yeah, but I, 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 this is the first moment in, not in for the sake where I feel. Not for the sake of yeah. it, because I actually think it produces, uh, you know, it, it, you're less likely to fall into the trap of everyone thinking the same way. Yeah, I sort of, I sort of, this is what um, uh, one of my other podcast guests was was um, saying the other day. I I sort of get it. But look, so uh, suppose I suppose I bought Pizza Express and I wanted to set up, um, you know, to decide who was going to run my 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 franchise restaurants. I really wouldn't care if every single restaurant manager was black transgender it wouldn't bother me at all if i felt that their primary aim was making the customer experience the best possible ensuring that the pizza crust was just right um just looking after the books all that stuff that's what i'd care about i just worry that you're even by saying that it's important to have diversity you're already you're already halfway down that slippery slope because actually diversity why? I mean, you know, you just want to get the best first person for the job, regardless yeah. of whether well, they're all black or that. all you white or all yellow. The job, and you must judge every individual as that individual and try to be, um, you know, look at them on their own merits. Um, oh. And, uh, you know, it's it's very difficult picking talent because I've often made mistakes and sometimes, you know, the best people are from the most unexpected backgrounds. Uh, and that's, yeah. you know, I think, for example, an awful lot of the most successful entrepreneurs I've worked with are not people who went to posh universities like you or I, that's for sure. So, well, I think, bloody right, yeah. You know, I think one needs to be open minded when uh, looking at the business world. I think that, um, you know, academic qualifications, for example, are not necessarily uh, uh, the answer. I think. It's a lot more complicated than that. Listen, if I were recruiting now, I would strike out any applications from Oxford and Cambridge. Um, <laughs> anyone who's got a anyone who's got a first, um, probably most university graduates. I, I mean, I totally agree with you. I'd, I'd probably get working class people from you know people who hadn't had the common sense educated out of them by mm. by woke university. Well, I do think that that phrase "common sense" is a, is a wonderful attribute, and I think we need as a society to get back to that a bit more. I think actually that's the biggest single ingredient in most walks of life success, good common sense. Yeah, yeah. Well, Luke, I wish you all the best. I hope you find your, what what are they called, sort of companies that you can buy up and transform into? Is there a, is there a name for them in the business? Uh, well, they generally call them distressed businesses, yes. Oh, I see. Right, distressed. I hope you find your your wounded fish thrashing yeah. about in the water that you can come and gobble it up with your sharky teeth and okay. get and turn into a whale. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Very good. All good. right. Well, and, and, and listen, 
Thank you for fighting the fight, because you have been about the only bloody businessman fighting against this nonsense. Not so, quite, but there aren't many of us, it's true, yes. I salute you. Good. Thank well, you. Oh, one more thing. Um, anyone who's enjoyed this podcast, as I'm sure you have, please don't forget to support me on Patreon and Subscribestar, because actually next time I might be able to afford a makeup team to stop me looking sweaty um, you know, when I get successful. I, I apologise for looking so rough now, but it is about the hottest day of the year. So that's all. <laughs> Patreon or Subscribestar. Thank you. Bye-bye.